If you would kindly turn with me into the word of the Lord to Genesis chapter 4. We will be reading the verses 1 through 14. Genesis chapter 4, the verses 1 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. It is read today in your presence. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. May the Lord be pleased to bless to us that reading of his holy and his inspired word. If you would kindly keep the text open before you this morning, it will be of help. 2.30 a.m. Friday. The phone rings, and you know, you know just because of the time that something is wrong. And the names of the people I saw this past week, they flashed through my mind. Jim, Sally, Jane, Phil. By that time, your hand is on the receiver. And in your 2.30 in the morning voice, you say, Hello? Pastor! The man bellows down the phone in his 12 o'clock noon voice. My wife has left me. A long tale of heartache, bitterness, and disappointment followed. Pastor, 
The bellowing had stopped and the change in his voice betrayed the fact that something big was going to come. It did. Pastor, he continued, what's the use of going on? What's the use of going on? Everything that I ever loved, everything that I ever cared about is gone. My life is just a big fat zero. It's totally and utterly meaningless. What can I do, Pastor? What can I do? I'll do anything. I will do anything at all. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, how can we help, Mike? How can we help you, too, if you are in the same or a similar situation to Mike? Well, would you like the good news first or would you like the bad news? You're not very responsive this morning. The good news. The good news. We can help, Mike. And we can help you, too. We can offer Mike all the help in the world, but because Mike is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can offer him all the help outside of this world. See, the Scripture tells us that our help is in the name of the Lord, and He is the Maker of heaven and earth. Think about that, brothers and sisters. Think about that for just a moment. Supernatural help from the Creator and the Sustainer of the universe. Isn't that exciting? Isn't that good news? The bad news, well, there isn't any. There isn't any. See, I hope you don't mind. I tricked you. You see, there really isn't any bad news because this is the good news. Meanwhile, Mike is waiting on the other end of the phone and he is waiting for some answers. And if you were to just share with him, Pastor Ian, what you shared with me about there being no bad news... In his life, well, he would be extremely annoyed. And if it were April 1st, he would think that he was the victim of the cruelest of April Fool jokes that's ever been played. So just how do we help Mike make meaning out of his meaningless life? Well, the only answer to that, or the only way in which that question is to be answered, is to turn to Him of whom the Holy Scripture says that it is in Him we live and move and we have our being. Yes, we turn to the Scriptures to see what the Lord God Himself has to say about Mike and his meaningless life. And that's why we read Genesis 3 and Genesis 4 together this morning. Because we see in Genesis 4, we see how the seeds of meaninglessness in the life of Cain have come to fruition in the way that Mike lives his life. And so by examining Cain and his parents, we shall find, first of all, the origin of meaninglessness in his life. 
And secondly, the way that meaningless begins to present itself in his thinking. And then third, the way it manifests itself in the way in which Cain lives his life. We shall find that the same themes that are present in Cain are present in Mike. And finally, we shall examine the question of what needs to be done. So the story of Adam and Eve and their disobedience before the Lord God, it precedes the Cain and Abel narrative. Genesis 3 comes before Genesis 4. But in order for us to understand Cain and Abel and that narrative, we have to view it within the context of Genesis 3. And so the third chapter of the book of Genesis, it tells us that it was Adam who broke covenant with the Lord God, and he did that through disobedience. Had Adam, our forefather, Had Adam not sinned, he would have been able to live life and to live life to the full. He would have remained in union and communion with the true and the living God. You see, God was for Adam the center of creation. He was the center of life. And everything that Adam thought about, everything that Adam did was done, first of all, in reference to the Lord God. There was no area, no none, that was not that did not find its significance and did not finding its meaning in God. And more than that, there was no circumstance that could ever arise that was beyond him making sense of. Nothing, nothing is left up to chance. And not only that, there was nothing about him, Adam. That he couldn't define, but if there was a difficulty, or if he was ignorant in such and such a particular situation, all he had to do was to go to the Lord God himself, and the Lord God would explain to him how it was that he was to live in this world that God created. So this relationship that the Lord God had with Adam was the basis of all meaning. It was, however, not only that, as if Adam had a basis for existence, but nothing else, as if he didn't know how it was that he were to live out his life before the Lord God. No, no, absolutely not. This relationship, you see, not only gave the basis for meaningful existence, in God's good creation, but it also guided and informed every aspect of life in the covenant. Adam's life exuded meaningfulness because everything, everything centered around God. Adam walked and talked with God in the cool of the day. Beautiful imagery. But alas, the introduction of sin into the created order at the hand of Adam and Eve, it put an end to meaningful life in the covenant. The wages of sin is death. Immediately the effects of sin are present and now Adam no longer walks and talks with God in the cool of the day. No longer is every thought captive to the obedience of God. 
No longer done in reference to the Lord God. Instead, life now moves away from God in exact oppositeness to the way that he was created. Genesis 3, 7 through 12, if you have your Bibles open there. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. I hid myself, and he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Right here, right here, brothers and sisters, we have the beginning of life outside of covenant. Adam, He sinned. He is dead in his transgressions and sins. Adam's life, if you can even say that, is in its totality begins to exude meaninglessness. And so the Lord God now in Cain's life, in Adam's life, no longer remains the center of his existence. But you know, brothers and sisters, that in no way changes the fact of reality. And that is, no matter what you think, God always is the center of life and existence. God. He is the creator and He is the sustainer of life. Adam sinned. God spoke into a world of sin and death and meaningless. And he did that independently of Adam. He sovereignly spoke. And he brought order and meaning out of an altogether totally hopeless situation. And in that speaking, after he pursued Adam in his sin, he gave a promise by which his people throughout countless generations could organize their lives in terms of. And it's this promise that restores, that gives meaning and purpose and hope to not only the lives of Adam and Eve, but also to the birth of their son Cain and Abel and to you too. This is the promise. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her seed and your seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And so the Lord God in sovereign majesty, in condescending kindness, He speaks and He asserts His control and He brings meaning to the worst of all possible situations. Certain death and eternal estrangement from God. You know, brothers and sisters, at this point we might be tempted to believe that the situation in the garden actually got away from God and that His hand was forced into making, well, a good situation out of a bad one. 
But we mustn't believe that. Because he is in control and he is responsible. Doesn't mean to say that he is responsible for sin and meaningless. No, we must be absolutely clear on this point. To be sure, there is much that we do not know about what transpired in the garden. But the Lord God doesn't ask us to live by what we don't know. He doesn't ask us to live by a deduction that we make. He asks us to live by what we do know. And what we do know is, is that God is not the author. And nor can he be charged with the sin that occurs. Because the scripture tells us his power and goodness are so great. And they are so comprehensible that he arranges. And he does his work very well. Even when devils and sinful men have their way. That is good news. Simply, brothers and sisters, death, moral decay and meaninglessness exists in your thinking when the covenant Lord is no longer the center of your life. And Cain thought that whatever he decided to do was going to be just fine. So when it came time to bring an offering to the Lord God for his goodness, Unlike his brother who brought, the Lord, who brought the Lord God the first fruits of his labors, Cain brought the, first, brought the fruit of the ground. And as we just read in the scripture, Abel's offering was accepted, but Cain's was rejected. Why? Why was this? Well, the difference doesn't lie in that one was a farmer and the other was a shepherd, or even, as some have suggested, that the offering was a blood offering and Cain's was bloodless. No, I don't think so. In other words, not in the kind of offering each of them brought, no. The difference is to be found in the manner in which these offerings were presented to the Lord God. You see, it's the attitude, it's the posture of the heart that is the key to understanding the rejection of Cain's sacrifice. Hebrews 11 helps us in that regard. The physical presentation of the sacrifice in that it was just the fruits represented the spiritual condition of the worshipper. Abel, however, gave the first fruits. And that was pleasing to God because of the posture of his heart. He was testifying that life was first and foremost to be found in God and in God alone. And that is, you see, again to say that the Lord God is the center of life. Abel's life is totally, totally resting upon God and his word. So the Lord God met Cain's sacrifice with rejection, and Cain in turn, he met rejection with anger. But Cain's anger, it wasn't to be found in any failure on his part, or even out of any kind of remorse for not giving to the Lord what was actually due the Lord. His anger, you see, was simply a reaction to a loss of position and the position of playing God, to be exact. God, you see, having rejected Cain's sacrifice, Cain was now faced toe-to-toe with the Almighty. 
The creature was facing off with the Creator, and he is faced squarely with the fact that he is not God, and that he could not do whatever he wanted in this God-created and God-sustained world. Came like his father before him, he desired to be as God. He desired to be the center of the universe. He desired to be the all-controller and the manipulator of his environment, and he did his best, did he not, at planning and scheming to get things on his own terms and establish his own little kingdom over which he could be his own little God. He thought that by going to the Lord God with a sacrifice, with an offering, that he could at least keep peace with God. After all, he says, I'm not going to be like Abel. I'm not going to give everything to God. I'm just going to go through the motions. That way I'll be happy. It'll keep God off my back and I can have my cake and eat it too. Meanwhile, Mike was telling me his story. It was a story that was filled with heartache. And as he talked, I began to get a fuller picture of what actually went on in his marriage. He was a respected man in Christian circles. He was on the board and a director of one of the local Christian schools. He was an elder in a local Bible-believing church. When it came to tithing, he was one of the best. He was so clean that when he walked, he squeaked. And when his wife and he came together for our weekly meetings, (laughs) he really didn't see any reason to be there. He smiled as he he spoke, a disarming smile, smooth, calm, very poised. And when he did speak, he said, you know, Pastor Ian, my wife insisted on counseling. I came along to be sure, but she's the one with the problem. In previous counseling sessions with Mike and his wife, you could just sense the underlying hopelessness. What's the use? What's the use of going on? But every time I inquired as to what was taking place and tried to make some initial inroads, nothing, absolutely nothing I said would stick. The marriage was Teflon. Is it my humor that's bad or just you don't get it? (laughs) Their marriage was like Teflon. (laughs) On the outside, the marriage was spotless. It was perfect. But it was really 
And in fact, bursting at the seams, it was dying. And it was just a matter of time before the bomb exploded. And I knew it, but I just couldn't get in. I just couldn't penetrate the surface. But now, but now at 2.30 in the morning, on a Friday, the doors were wide open and the blueprint of the marriage was laid bare and the Lord God was nowhere to be found. Mike was at the center of this blueprint. He was the master controller. And do you know, and do you know he was so proficient at control that when it came to confronting him about particular situations, he was so good at it that he made the situation out to be something that it wasn't and in fact ended up calling God a liar. He had set up his own little kingdom. He devised his own set of rules by which everybody in the family had to play. He told his wife what was what and what was not. She had to live by every word that proceeded out of Mike's mouth. He was the king of the castle and you're the dirty rascal. When she questioned him, that was tantamount to outright rebellion. How could you? How can you say those things? Look, I'm a respected man in the Christian community. Do you see Mike, brothers and sisters? Do you see him? He's like Cain. He's like Cain. Like Cain, he thought that he could live with himself at the center of the universe. Like Cain, he thought that he could be his own little God and lay down his own rules. Like Cain, he thought that he could keep God off his back by doing in a formal way the right things. And like Cain, who thought that he could actually control God, Mike thought that he could control God and his wife. And when he found out that he couldn't control his wife, he, like Cain, became angry. Brothers and sisters, it is the covenant breaker man. It's Cain. It's Mike who demand absolute submission in your relationship in every area of your life. Dominion. But pastor, you say, that's all very fine and dandy. That's great theology. But didn't you hear what Mike said at the end of the phone call? He said he would do anything, anything at all. Yes, I heard him. And it's that very phrase I would suggest to you that betrays the motive of his heart. You see, brothers and sisters, I hear that time and time and time again. I will do anything. And when I hear that, I've got to the place now that a shiver runs down the back of my spine because I know he'll do anything. I know he'll do anything at all to get what he wants. So I asked Mike, would you kill? Cain did. Brothers and sisters, when you think of the Cain and Abel story, the first thing that probably comes to your mind is that Cain murdered Abel, and you are correct in thinking that. 
It was the murder of Abel by Cain. It was death that characterized Cain's lifestyle apart from the living God. We saw in Genesis chapter 3 how the seeds of this murderous act were sown, how sin was introduced into God's good creation by the hand of Adam and Eve, and how immediately it began to manifest itself in the thinking of this covenant breaker man in a way that was contrary to everything that God stood for. Adam knew that he was naked. And then we proceeded, didn't we, to examine how it was that Cain was beginning to think and we saw how programmatic sin is in its search for absolute dominion, how sin systematically and programmatically works itself out in the building of a kingdom, the kingdom of man contrary to the kingdom of God. And Cain is the king of the castle. And he thought, didn't he, that by placing himself in the very position that only the Lord God has the right to occupy, that he and he alone had the right to determine what was true and what was lie. He lied, believing it was the truth. He even, con- he even condemned God for bearing false witness to him. God said, if you eat of that tree, you'll die. And Cain, Adam said, no, I won't. Watch. So now we'll see how that thinking translates into action. What kind of lifestyle does this covenant breaker lead? After the confrontation that Cain had with God... When God rejected his sacrifice, God spoke to Cain and said, Why are you angry? Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, or if you do what is right, will not your face be lifted up? Will not your countenance be lifted up? But if you do not do well, if you do not do that which is right, sin is crouching at the door. It desires you. But you must rule over it. Well, the following verses testify, don't they, that Cain refused what? to do what was right and be accepted. Instead, Cain chose to do what was right in his own eyes. He still refused to repent and to give the Lord the rightful place in his life. He still thought that he could do things his way and still be king of the castle. He always had an answer. Always. And whatever it was that was brought before him, he managed to put a different spin on it to make the wife look like the bad guy. And he continued to refuse to believe that the curse that the Lord God has given his father in the garden was true. And the curse literally reads, dying you shall die. Cain was dying, but he didn't get it. He refused to accept The truth of what the Lord had told him. And he was determined thereby not to do what was right and be accepted. After all, that would be to let God get the better of him. 
He was going to take charge and he was going to remedy this situation once and for all. He was going to kill his brother Abel. Why speak to me, God? I'm not the problem. It's her. Why speak to me, God? After all, if it weren't for Abel, I wouldn't be in this pickle, would I? And so the conversation with Mark, with Mike, draws to a close. And Mike's telling me, you know, if my wife had not left home, If she had just done what I told her to do, well, none of this would have happened and I wouldn't be sat here in front of you. She would have been home and everything in the family would be just fine. You know, when she comes home, I'm going to have to speak to her about all the trouble that she's... Oh. Sorry, Pastor Ian, you know that I really love her, don't you? Cain killed Abel. Mike shot his wife. Even after shooting his wife and being incarcerated. When you visit Mike in prison, this is what he says. Oh, this punishment is more than I can bear. Why does he cry out like that? Simply, Mike's punishment is more than... He can bear because he, like Cain, being God, thought that he could create his own reality. And if it's not my way, it's the highway. He could create his own reality that his wife really and truly, really and truly was the problem. He is deceived. Wholeheartedly deceived. In every aspect of his existence, he suffers from a delusion, and the delusion is this. There's no need for repentance in my life, Pastor Ian, because I haven't sinned. I could have had a V8. (laughs) Therefore, any punishment, any punishment, is more than I can bear. See, rather than doing what was right and being accepted, Mike, like Adam, when he was, when he was confronted with the word of the Lord, he was fearful. Listen to this pattern. He was fearful. He ran. He hid. He covered. And he blame-shifted. Ran, hid, covered, blame shifted, and he was fearful. These are the seeds, brothers and sisters, of meaninglessness that eventually came to manifest themselves in a disobedient lifestyle. And they are the indispensable elements of a sinful worldview. And they are designed, they are consciously designed, at least practically, to deny his necessary submission to the Lord God and to his word. Mike, like the city that Cain built, walled himself in. 
He's placed himself in the land of Nod, which means flight and banishment. His life is characterized completely and totally by fear and wandering. He can't understand what happened. Isn't that just incredible? He can't understand what happened to his wife and to his family. But at the same time that he laments the circumstances that he has found himself in, he is decidedly not willing to listen to the Scripture. He is decidedly not willing to repent, to do what is right and be lifted up and to be accepted. You know, he's even so foolish and quick to strike out at people from his church who want to help him, thereby cutting off the very lifeline that he needs so desperately. Brothers and sisters, Mike is sinking. He is sinking into a sea of meaninglessness and he refuses to do what's right. But at the same time that he refuses to do what's right, with the other side of his mouth he calls for help, but he doesn't want it. Truly, that is meaninglessness. So the conversation ends with Mike. I'll do anything, anything at all. So, brothers and sisters, we arrive back at the same place that we started out with the question, what can be done for Mike? And the answer we said was all good news. And it is all good news because Mike, like Cain, is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you struggle in these areas, then it's all good news for you too. Since Mike is not here, however... And you are. I would like to speak to you and to your life. But before we leave Mike completely, let me ask you, will you do anything? Anything at all? Really? Really? Will you repent? Brothers and sisters in the Lord, in answering that question, what is before you is the matter of repentance. And you ask yourself, what should be your response to the preaching of the good news? And no doubt the first word that comes into your mind is faith. And the answer is, of course, correct. You must believe what the Scriptures teach you. But does your response to the gospel entail a faith that involves a turning away from sin and transgression, a turning away from what is contrary to the word of God, and a turning to the Lord? As you can see, there is a close relationship between faith and repentance. In a few moments, we will look at that relationship. But for now... Let me ask you, what does it mean for you to repent? Having answered that question, we will then be in a better position to answer the question, why is that repentance necessary? Turn, if you would, to Acts 20, 21. This verse helps us immensely in our understanding of this topic. Because in that verse... 
Paul is testifying concerning the character of his preaching ministry among the Ephesian elders. The word of the Lord. I have declared to both Jew and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. They must turn to God in repentance. That's one word. It's a word that means a radical change of mind or will. That's probably something, if you have had the privilege growing up in church, that you know. Your mind and your will must change. Whereas there had previously been a love of sin, now there must be a hatred of sin. You must have changed attitude towards to your sin. You must learn to put off those former patterns of life, the old man. But don't just stop there. Don't just stop there and think that that's enough. That a change of attitude or a change of mind or will is the whole story. Isn't that the problem with Mike? There must also be a change in behavior, a turnaround in practice as well as in thinking. Turning your Bibles to Hebrews 6.1. The writer there, he speaks about repentance and he says that there is repentance from dead works. Repentance from dead works. Not only dead thoughts, but dead works. And so you have to come to the place in your life where you have to stop doing them. You have to put off the old man that was crucified with Christ Jesus, while at the same time you must turn and do that which is right in the sight of God, that is put on the new man that is created in Christ Jesus. And both of those ideas find expression in Acts 20. He declared to both Jew and Gentile that they should repent and turn to God and perform deeds worthy of their repentance. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, when is a thief not a thief? When is a thief not a thief? Okay. If I am a thief and I am walking away from God as a thief and I stop thieving, am I still a thief? Yes, Pastor Ian. You're still a thief. So, I must turn from my sin and turn unto God And when is a thief not a thief? When he goes to work with his hands and he gives to the poor. You see the dynamic? You see the dynamic? A putting off of the old man, no longer thieving, put on the new man, go to work with my hands, turning to God, going to work with my hands, and I'm still a thief per se until I give to the poor. That is to say... I am transformed into a new man. The fullness of the expression of repentance. Repent and turn to God and perform deeds worthy of repentance. So let me ask you, brothers and sisters, does your conception of repentance include only grief? 
Only grief for sin? Do you think that if you are very sorry that you have sinned or that you have been caught sinning against the Lord God and you just simply fess up that that is repentance? Well, to be sure, grief for sin is of the essence of repentance and it's an indispensable element. But Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 7.10 that godly grief, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. Mike, Mike, a godly grief that leads to salvation. Grief is the indispensable component of repentance, but note that Paul says it is godly grief that leads to repentance. And so you see, if you stop short simply with grief and sorrow, oh, Pastor Ian, yeah, I know, you know, I know it's wrong. I shouldn't treat my wife that way, but hey, if that's your idea, then the message of Holy Scripture to you this morning is that you have come short of the repentance that leads to salvation. That's admonishment for the benefit. It presumes the existence of sin. It's a verbal exchange that you have with God and it's for your benefit. That is a nothetic confrontation. So Paul goes on to say there in 2 Corinthians 7.10 that worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief contrasted with godly grief. And there's a vast difference between the two. Godly grief is to abhor sin, to hate it more and more and to run away from it. That's the full-orbed understanding of repentance. So all of those things that I've just mentioned are necessary. You must not only detest sin, you must not only hate sin, not only grieve for it, but you must detest it so much that you actually stop doing what God says. Well, that brings up the second point, and that is the necessity. Really, Pastor Ian, do I have to? The necessity of repentance. To be clear, first of all, repentance is not meritorious. Repentance is not meritorious. You might be tempted to think that repentance is because it's something that you do. You might think that it is a meritorious achievement as earning something because of the close connection that the Bible has between repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Luke 17.3 If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. That is to say that repentance should result in the forgiveness of sins and it does that on a human level because it does that on a divine level. So when you repent of your sins, yes, you can expect the forgiveness of God. That is why John is represented to us in the pages of Holy Scripture as preaching a baptism of repentance unto the forgiveness of our sins. Peter, you will remember, he preached with that same end in view in Acts 2. Repent and be baptized, any, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. 
So I understand. I can see how it might be tempting when you look at the Scriptures for you to think that repentance, something you do, might be conceived as something that you earn or that you merit from God. In other words, in other words, a connection is made that you are forgiven because you repent. And because you have repented, forgiveness is deserving. That might be the connection that it's made. And in popular piety, that is exactly the connection that it's made. But it's wrong. It's wrong. Your repentance, brothers and sisters, your repentance is not, is not the meritorious ground of your forgiveness. Your repentance earns you absolutely nothing. To be sure, the Lord God forgives those who repent of their sins, but He does not forgive them because they repent. He forgives the penitent, but he does not forgive them of their sins because they repent. The point is simply this, that your repentance is owed to God irrespective of whether you are forgiven or not. You see, sinners ought to turn away from sin for no other reason than it is a sin against Almighty God. You ought to turn from sin. Sin is an act of subordination. It is an act of rebellion and it ought to be stopped. But the fact that God, in condescending kindness, is pleased to forgive those of you who repent of your sin, that is grace. That is grace, pure and simple. The reason, the reason why God forgives you does not lie in you and it does not lie in your repentance. Isn't theology great? It makes sense of a whole load of things that rattle around in our heads that we can never figure out. The reason why God forgives you, brothers and sisters, lies wholly and exclusively in Jesus Christ and His righteousness and His righteousness alone. Jesus saves you, not your repentance, not your faith. Jesus saves you because He has borne the penalty of your sin and because, and only because, He has borne the penalty of your sin can you be forgiven. The reason why God does not exact the penalty, the condemnation for sin from you, is not because you have repented. But only, only because Christ has borne the penalty in your place so that you can receive both faith and repentance as a gift. Salvation is a gift from start to finish. So then, Repentance does not merit, it does not earn forgiveness of sins. There is nothing meritorious about it, nothing. But the fact that it is not meritorious does not mean that you can dispense with it. 
You can't dispense with it as though it were not necessary or as though you could enjoy fellowship with God and your neighbor in the absence of repentance. Not at all. Nowhere does the Lord God make that clearer than in Luke 13, verses 3 and 5. He speaks there of certain Galileans who were killed by the fall of the Tower of Siloam. And then he says to those who are listening to him, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And when you think about those passages of Scripture for just a moment, you can see the point how repeatedly in the Scripture repentance is put forward to us as repentance unto the forgiveness of our sins. Repent unto the forgiveness of your sins. Repeatedly, consistently represented in this way that the conclusion, my brothers and sisters, at the end of the day is unavoidable. There is no forgiveness without repentance. It is not the meritorious ground You cannot obligate God in anything that you do. God does not forgive you of your sins because of anything that you do. You do not contribute in any way, shape to the forgiveness of your sins. Absolutely not. So how do you enjoy the forgiveness of God? You enjoy the forgiveness of God in the way of repentance. Those of you who walk in the way of repentance, you know the forgiveness and acceptance of God. If you can bear with me for just a little while longer, when Jesus commissioned his apostles to preach the gospel of the new covenant, he did that in Luke 24:47. And listen to what he told them. To preach repentance unto the forgiveness of sins. So what's the good news of the gospel? What's your response to the preaching of the good news? The good news of the gospel is not that God forgives those who don't repent. The good news of the gospel is not that God forgives those of you who do not repent of your sins. The good news is that He forgives people who do repent of their sins. That, my brothers and sisters, is good news. Well, why is that good news? Because your repentance doesn't deserve the forgiveness of sins. You get it? Do you? Your repentance does not deserve the forgiveness of sins, but they are necessary in order that God will forgive you. But His forgiveness is grounded in Jesus. That's why He can forgive you of your sins. Your repentance does not deserve the free gift of forgiveness. So there are many ministers today who don't like to preach repentance. They want you to know that you are forgiven by faith in Jesus Christ, and so you are, but a faith that is devoid of repentance is a monstrosity in the kingdom of God. Faith and repentance are so invariably and inexorably intertwined with each other that you cannot separate them. One person says, which comes first, faith or repentance? Ever been in any of those kind of discussions? 
What comes first? Which is more important, repentance or faith? It's the wrong question. If you're a theology student, please don't write any more papers about that. You can't answer that question. Don't spill any more ink on it. It's meaningless. How can you turn to Jesus without turning away from sin? If you're walking away from the Lord Jesus Christ and you hear the call of the gospel and you hear your Savior call and you turn, are you turning in faith or are you turning in repentance? Yes. Yes. So when you read the scripture, there are times that the gospel sometimes goes out with this. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There are other times that it goes out like this. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Believe, repent. And yet there are other times from the mouth of Jesus himself where you have the demand in both words, repent and believe the gospel. That's what Jesus says. Did he somehow get his theology wrong and put repentance before faith or put faith before repentance in the Ordo Salutis? No, he didn't. He's Jesus. So the Lord God there, Jesus, he is pleased to pick up the message of the prophets, the the preaching of John the Baptist and the preaching of the prophets. So, my brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, you answer, how can I do all that? How can I do what is right and be accepted? You can do that, my brothers and sisters, because you have been crucified with the Lord Jesus Christ. The old nature has been put to death. Sin does not make you do anything. Your wife does not make you do anything. You do it because you want to do it. Fess up. And in fessing up, don't think that you're a changed man. And wives, don't think that your husband is a changed man just because he fessed up. Because he has to put off the old man and he has to learn to put on the new man and walk in the way of righteousness and truth. That's what he has to do. That's what you all have to do. And that is why you find the significance of biblical counseling here in the church. That's what your minister and your elders are equipped to do. But you've got to do it. And when you do it, you are not to say, Oh, well, I did this, God. Therefore, now, God, you are obligated to make my wife return to me because she left me because I did this. No, not at all. You have to do that because you belong to the Lord God. And if you love him, you will keep his commandments. And if the Lord God is pleased pleased in his grace to return his wife, your wife to you, all well and good, but that's not the reason, brothers, why you do what's right. Mike, he shot his wife. She didn't die. They're together. Mike's a new man. He repented. Wholeheartedly, he repented. 
Will you? Shall we pray? Father in heaven, how much there is to learn. Your word is truth. Your word, O Lord, is life. And we pray, as we seek in our lives to be instructed by the Holy Gospel, that you will be patient with us, that you will be kind and that you will be merciful to us, O Lord, for we are stiff-necked. We are presumptuous as to your grace. We settle, O Lord, for much less than the gospel promises us. So we ask, O Lord, as we seek to live a life of holiness and righteousness before you, that we understand that when we do those things, we love you. We keep your commandments. And where there is love, there is no earning of favor. There is no meritorious righteousness. Our acceptance before you, O Lord, is grounded wholly and only in Jesus and in his righteousness. For his life of perfect righteousness, O Lord, his reward was death. The crown that was upon his head should have been upon ours. The spear in his side should have been in ours. He died, but he died, O Lord, so that we might have life. And we pray, O Lord, through the work of the Spirit and through the work of the church in our lives, that we would be equipped, fully equipped, to do the work of the kingdom and the proclamation of the gospel to the nations so that there will be a time when our Redeemer comes when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Until that time, O Lord, bless your church, we pray. Amen.